Welcome to I Want to Put a Baby in You, a podcast exploring reproductive technology and life-changing stories. Here are your hosts, Jennifer White and Ellen Trackman. Welcome back, loyal listeners, to our podcast. I'm Ellen Season. Trackman. I, I'm Jennifer oh, White. And here oh, I am with Jennifer I'm, White. <laughs> yay, I'm Jennifer White. And I was so excited that I started too quickly. It's season oh. seven. Woo. So excited. And wow. for those who don't know, we just, you know, call approximately every 10 episodes a season and then take a break. That's, that's our system. That sometimes it's nine. It's so nine, it's ten. Approximate. Yeah. <laughs> approximate three or four week break. It's kind of a system going. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Jen, how was your summer? Uh, it was good. I traveled a lot for work. So I feel a little bit like a jet setter. I think I touched yeah. definitely both coasts and many places in the middle. I got to go to our homeland and got to go see New Mexico for a few days, which was really, really lovely. Yeah, get some, um, yeah. get some How's, points, mileage. Uh, and, yeah, exactly, right? I'm like, uh, lots of that. But uh, how was your summer? Uh, mine was good. Had some adventures too. Um, learned something new. I learned exactly what happens when someone fills your tank with diesel instead of unleaded. Uh, oh. Learned that those YouTube videos on siphoning are not as good as they, they say they are. And it does oh. turn out to be a bigger problem that like, you say if you even start the car, it ruins the engine. So learned a lot. I, you know, have lived my four decades not knowing what would happen in such a scenario. But right uh, and now, you know, <laughs> yes, now I know. But on to the season, I think we have a very exciting season ahead. We have a lot of experts coming. And yeah. this start off is a really good one with an expert. Um with someone, so we have people who are like really like deep in the fertility world, really helping patients and doing advocacy as well. And a great example of that is Kate Weldon LeBlanc, who will tell her personal story as well as her expertise and what brought her to to helping others in the area. Welcome, Kate Weldon LeBlanc. Thank you for joining us on the podcast. Thank you for having me. <laughs> so we often like to start with letting you introduce yourself and give a little bit of background. And if you want to start by um, what you do, but then we'll dive into kind of what brought you to that position as well. Sure. Thanks. So I am very happily and proudly the executive director of Resolve New England, which is a New England based nonprofit organization. And I came to this position, this wonderful organization, because I myself went through infertility and am very passionate about people that are struggling to become parents or to further build their family. And our own experience with infertility was that um, basically I have always wanted to be a mother and I kind of joke that more so than I ever wanted to be a wife. And so I'm like, no offense to my husband. We can hang around, I guess. Sorry, honey. Yeah. <laughs> he's heard this before. Yeah. I mean, he's wonderful, but I was not a kid who dreamt Aww. about my wedding. I dreamt about being a mom and like playing with dolls and babysitting Aww. and all that kind of stuff. So then we did get married um, and had a lovely wedding, even though it hadn't been of my daydream material. Um, and <laughs> then I was finishing grad school. And then when I finished grad school, like 
the sort of relatively type A, very much planner type person that I am, I was like, okay, mm-hmm. now I'm ready. So let's now, now it's time to have a baby, yeah, right? Have a baby. <laughs> yeah. And I just thought that it seemed like that happened very naturally and easy for everyone else. Um, you know, and I, you know, so I really think I thought we, I think we thought it was going to happen like the first month that we weren't preventing pregnancy. And obviously it did not. Um, Funny how everybody thinks that, right? Know. You know, like I, I did too. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, you know, so I think in the beginning we weren't too worried. And then, you know, as each month passes, I, you know, I, it was like, all right, this isn't really happening and just on and on. And so I don't remember exactly, but definitely over a year of trying. Oh, and so I was only 30 years old at this time. Uh, and I would I was, say you're young. Yeah, right? I would, um, yeah. I would, and so after over a year of trying, I um, went to my own primary care and to, you know, say that I needed help. And she actually walked in and was like about eight months pregnant. Uh, <laughs> so she walked oh, in and like her uh, huge belly was no. in my face. And I, I think I actually said out loud, like, are you freaking kidding me? Like, I actually said that out loud because it was like, just hard. You know, that I, that was actually a really hard, um, milestone. And I think it's one that's maybe, um, like underappreciated in the fertility field is like when you're just in that very beginning stage of acknowledging that you have a problem. And I remember stumbling over my language Uh, or whatever, and just being like, you know, we've been trying for a while and unsuccessfully. And I think I have infertility. I think I remember saying, and she was like, you know, so fortunately other than being pregnant, she was wonderful. (laughs) And uh, my own um, medical practice that I was part of had a fertility department. So they referred me. And where did you live at the time? Just Uh, because, I mean, that is relevant for a lot of your advocacy you do and things like that. Yes. So I pretty much, other than college, I have lived in Massachusetts my whole life, including this period. Um, So I was in Massachusetts uh, in the Boston area. So, you know, even though infertility was was and is one of the hardest things that I have ever gone through. We also had many assets and um, one of them was certainly insurance coverage, which we had in Massachusetts. Uh, Massachusetts has had an infertility insurance law since 1987. Wow. So we're very fortunate. Wow. Yeah, yeah. So we actually celebrated the 30th anniversary of that law a couple of years ago at the Massachusetts State House, and there were there are still legislators there that were there to, and supported the bill in 1987. So we acknowledged them and thanked them, and they were so happy because, for one, they said they don't get thanked very much for things. They get asked for a lot, but they don't get thanked that much. <laughs> right. And also just to see that they're passing that bill has literally resulted in thousands of babies being born since then was just super rewarding for them. There was a baby at that event wearing a onesie that said, thank you, Massachusetts. Oh, that's so sweet. It's really, oh, that gives me quills. Oh, yeah, so it was really powerful. I'll send you that picture actually, if, if you want. Yes. Um, yes. So, yeah. So I digress, but it, we were very fortunate to be in Massachusetts. So we had, did, we had did coverage. You, did you know about that? Like, did, I mean, why would you, I guess the kind of the question. No, no, I didn't. And I think, I mean, again, it's just crazy to think of now how little I didn't know, but I don't think that is unusual yeah. that I think I just assumed that we had this medical condition and that we would have insurance coverage for it. Uh, and obviously, unfortunately in the majority of States in the nation, that is not the case. And 
we'll talk about yeah. that later. Um, right. So <laughs> we um, we also were very fortunate because uh, the greater Boston area has many, many excellent fertility care providers. So we were not in an area where access to care from a logistical perspective was a challenge. And that again is also not true everywhere. So so even though we were so sad and and this was one of the most difficult emotional periods of of either of our lives, my husband or myself, and uh probably well my expression of it was more um obvious than my husband's. I, I'm a crier and a yeah. So it was really hard. And uh, so long story short, we had we were diagnosed, quote unquote, with unexplained infertility, which, again, I know many people are. But this was a new. Yes, this was a new term for me. That's the worst. Uh, where you're like, I want to know what's exactly. broken. I want to fix exactly. it. Exactly. So as a uh, previously yeah. confessed planner, this was sort of a right. nightmare You need scenario. an action plan. Yeah. But fortunately, uh I realized that even if you didn't know the why, you could have a plan. You could have a plan of attack. You just didn't quite know the why. But it's such an unusual thing to be diagnosed with something, but really not. Like you have infertility, but we don't exactly know why. So there were some subtle things, but um, generally on paper, everything looked good. And so I think in part because of that, insurance required that we do three cycles of IUI. And, um, you know, because the the thought, I think, was that we were maybe likely to be successful with that. Uh, yeah. We were not. And I remember um, that particular, again, that that is a point in the process that I recall as being really difficult was the negative you know, re- respond, you know, the negative result to our first IUI, because I think I felt in my mind like, okay, when we put A and B together in the right scenario with some assistance, this is going to be, of course, successful. Right, right. The insurance people, the professionals, they're telling us that this is our next best shot, right? And, you know, right. you're like, so this must be it. Yeah, right. Exactly. And at, and at that stage, there were very few people we were telling that we were going through this, but you know, you kind of would hear anecdotally like, Oh, so-and-so's friend did get, you know, was successful with IUI. Like who this unicorn is. I don't know. I mean, I know some people are, which is wonderful, but personally, well, personally I wasn't. And I have not had a lot of personal experience with people being successful with IUI. So I think I had unrealistic expectations for my own success. Um, And so the first IUI that didn't work was really emotional for, for me. Um, and that, so it ended up all three of them didn't work. And then we were approved to move on to IVF. And I felt uh, really hopeful about that and, you know, scared. I remember being really daunted by the injection, you know, protocol. I really had never done shots for anything before. And, So I remember being really daunted by the idea of it, uh, but then the reality of it, although obviously it is not enjoyable, the reality of it was easier to manage than my fear and of the unknown. So that was one upside. So throughout basically the physical side of, of infertility and of fertility treatment were certainly challenging, but they paled in comparison for me personally to the emotional struggle. And that's why I think that's such a a passion of mine personally and professionally. And so we did IVF and um, we 
were successful after our second cycle. So it was okay. Not the first time, but yes, the not the one. first time. And it felt like a long time, but obviously I have had the privilege of getting to know so many people who have had challenging roads to parenthood. And so I recognize um, that we were fortunate, like I said, for many reasons, but that also isn't to minimize that it was very a very difficult time for us. Um, and the other funny thing I tell people is like, you know, I'm a generally pretty hopeful, optimistic person, but I was obviously, this was a really challenging time. And of, of our three IUIs and then our two IVFs, the one that was successful, I had the most negative oh. attitude. I was so down. I was so emotional. <laughs> and so it's funny because, I mean, I do generally believe both for fertility treatment and just life in general, that it is great to be upbeat and hopeful if you can and to be positive. But I, I joke with people sometimes that I'm like, think negatively. That worked for me. That's the only time I was <laughs> Yeah, I'd like do a little like, you know, elbow thing, like think negatively because that was my thing. I was like... I absolutely like love Thanksgiving. It's my favorite holiday. And I remember I was sitting in the phlebotomist chair getting blood work no. done on the morning of Thanksgiving and <gasps> she missed my veins and, you know, so oh. I'm, you know, which is, I was like, I think she's the holiday <laughs> phlebotomist or whatever. No offense to her, but, um, and then I started crying and it, I think she felt so bad and thought she had hurt me. And again, it, it wasn't pleasant physically, but I was not crying because of that. I was just crying because that that's, I felt the furthest thing from grateful on Thanksgiving and was not where I wanted to be. But then that ended up being the cycle that was successful. And so again, I was pretty naive in terms of um, how many things could have gone wrong. And we had a couple little um, scary things in our pregnancy, but generally once we conceived, I was like, yay, you know, like, this is great. So we actually told our families on Christmas and I think we wouldn't have told them so soon. That was only like two weeks from our positive beta, but we told them because it was just so exciting to tell them on Christmas and it was really exciting. And then fortunately that pregnancy was healthy and relatively um, incident free. And so our daughter turns 12 this month. 12. Wow. Happy birthday. Thank you. And she is much more aware Yay. of eggs and sperm and embryos than the average 12 year old, which is okay I, I with think me. Anybody who has some kind of hand in this kind of world. Uh, yeah. yeah. Yes. <laughs> yeah. So it's very funny sometimes the things she comes up with, but um, yeah. So I'm, I love, uh, well, I love talking to her about it. I mean, I, we told her in broad strokes for a long time, just about the fact that we really wanted to be parents so much and that it, it didn't come easy for us and it took a lot of help and work to become parents. So we, in very broad strokes, we talked about it because to me, it felt weird to talk about IVF before we talked about how babies are typically made. And she hadn't expressed an interest in that at all until basically she was like on her ninth birthday. She was like, so tell me about this baby like, thing. Like, in a petri dish. Okay. So like, okay, here we go. Yeah. I was like, buckle up. So I was like, okay, well, you know, so I kind of did my best effort to explain how it's typically done, to which her response was, that's awkward. Sometimes it is. And then I said, but you have a different story. And then we talked about that. And there was actually a wonderful book that I used, kids book that I used that I believe is called Miracle Baby. Um, and 
that book worked really well for us to explain our particular journey. It happens to be a heterosexual couple that ends up having one daughter uh, that they're explaining what IVF is to her. And so we finished, I read through that book one time, uh, you know, stopping a little bit along the way to make different comments. And then at the end of it, she said, can we read that again? (laughs) Which was so great. Yeah. So that really helped. Um, So, and so that's, well, so that's it in a nutshell. I, I, and so then professionally, I have always worked in public policy and advocacy and nonprofit Uh, management type jobs. And I was actually working for a different nonprofit in the greater Boston area that I absolutely loved and was not looking for a new job. Uh, But then a dear friend of mine sent me the job listing for an executive director. (laughs) This is your future. Resolve New England and said, on her message said, I know you're not looking, but dot, dot, dot. (laughs) And yeah. And I really got like, my heart was racing and my cheeks turned red. I was like, I want that job. And, um, and I said to myself, because I really liked the job I had working for a different nonprofit. So I said to myself, well, clearly this physical reaction is telling me that I need to at least try for this job. But if I don't get it, it's okay. I'll stay at the job I have, which I like. Um, but then the more, the more I got into it, the more, I wanted it. So the, this, uh, resolve new England's signature event of the year is an annual conference in the first weekend in November that provides really comprehensive information and resources specifically focused on individuals and couples that are right now trying to build their family. And when we were going through infertility, we never went to the conference. So I didn't go to it until 2014 when I was interviewing for the executive director position. And so two (laughs) things happened when I went to it. One was I was kicking myself for not going. Right. (laughs) Yes, because I just realized how much it would have helped me on multiple levels. And secondly, I thought I need to get this job. And fortunately, a couple weeks later, obviously, I was hired, which I've been so happy. And so I started in January of 2015. And I love it so much. So in a nutshell, yeah. Do you mind yeah, telling yeah. like does the difference between what Resolve is nationally and new and Resolve New England um, as well? Sure. Yes, because we I know that's confusing, understandably, to a lot of people. So Resolve New England is a regional nonprofit organization that is focused on providing support education and advocacy for anyone in New England struggling with fertility or family building, and we are a separate nonprofit from Resolve, the National Infertility Association. We very proudly partner with them on many things, uh, including advocacy, but we are separate. Uh, we are, I always say like, we're cousins, <laughs> but not siblings. I, <laughs> so we're not. A, you're not a child yeah. of them. You're just. I'm not a child. <laughs> no, you're just. Are they? We're are friends. there are, are there cousins, other cousins yeah. or are you guys the only cousin? <laughs> there are not other cousins. No. And I think, you know, so we were kind I feel like we were kind of very kindly grandfathered in because it's a longer story, but what is now the National Infertility Association actually started in Massachusetts in 1974. And then it moved physically moved to the DC area. So I think um, because of that intertwined history, I think we were kind of, um, again, kindly 
really allowed to continue to use part of the name and to, and our missions are very similar. So that's why I think it's been so collaborative rather than where, you know, it, anything else because it we're all working towards the same goal and I really think we enhance each other's efforts in many ways um, but otherwise I think you know resolve wants things national resolve wants things centralized with them which is understandable uh, there you know I think their support groups around the country and other efforts really provide that local uh, focus and the the local grounding uh, but we, so we're, and we're, we feel fortunate in New England because they help us so much with so many things. And, um, but we also are able to do our own, um, programming and, and efforts in this specific region. And I was gonna say, I know it's, I know it's super collaborative because I know like even like the walks of hope are really similar. And even if like, I, I know I'm a member of Resolve New England and resolve, but it's all under the same blanket. <laughs> I, didn't, I didn't have to work yeah. very hard to make both things happen, you know, because they oh, good, you, good. you guys like well, you yeah. hold hands as you're walking along together, right? <laughs> right. So that that's a great point. So the New England, so now we do a New England Walk of Hope that is a partnership between National Resolve and Resolve New England. So that we didn't go off and do our own Walk of Hope. We do to the contrary, again, kindly, Resolve came to us and said, we would love to do a Walk of Hope in New England, which is really a national Resolve, you know, event, um, but said, you know, we don't, we can't imagine doing it in New England without you. So let's do it together. And it's been an absolutely wonderful partnership. And this September 22nd will be our fifth annual New England Walk of Hope. So that is, that's our most concrete partnership between the two. But you're so right. There's a lot of other really subtle collaborations that we have. So um, yeah, we kind of honor reciprocal memberships between um, companies that want to be a member of both organizations, but are in New England. And also um, trying to think of another example something just, anyway, it just left my mind. But yeah, there's several examples like that where, oh, I know what it is. Because one of my favorite parts of the Resolve national website is the feature where you can search by zip code for a infertility support group closest to you, which is awesome. And they, again, are nice enough to include our Resolve New England support groups in that search function and acknowledge that they are a Resolve New England group and not a Resolve group. But they do that, of course, because they want... Um, for people in New England, those are the groups. And so they want to make sure that um, people who go to the National Resolve website looking for a New England resource find what they need. So it works That's out great. great. Do you want to give an overview of the other programming? So there's the walk, there's the money, there's the support groups, there's the big conference each year. Is there, is there any other parts we're missing? Well, those are the biggest ones. Yeah. So the conference is big. I mentioned that already. And we have a similar, um, because that's only once a year, we wanted to have at least one other in-person educational event that was available for people that were, that really needed it then. Um, and so we have on a much smaller scale than the conference, we have an in-person seminar another time in the year. So like this year, I believe it was in late March. And that's wonderful in its own way. Like I said, it's smaller scale than the conference, but it gives information about adoption and donor conception. 
in a really kind of intimate setting. It's at the Wellesley College Club, which is on the campus of Wellesley College. And it's a really nice, so like the conference attracts like almost 200 people total when you factor in all the people that are there for volunteers, exhibitors, speakers, and attendees. And the seminar is more like 30 or 35. So it's just a really different vibe, but it's it has its own benefits as well. So though, and we also, so those are the in-person events we have, but we also see part of our role as just, um, um, sharing information and even more importantly, I think building community in other more abstract ways than our specific support groups and our specific educational programs. So whether it's social media or we do a magazine three times a year, we have a blog on our website. So we have a lot of different ways that we try to get information out there to people who need and want that information throughout the whole year. And you mentioned, so we kind of touched on it a little bit earlier, and then I kind of looped back. You talked a lot about advocacy. And I know that's, right. that's also a huge portion of what you guys yes. do. And yes. I'd love to explore because it's been a really exciting year for New England. <laughs> so right. yeah, you want, You're so, you want to talk yes, a little bit about I mean, what's going like, on? <laughs> Yeah, I'd love to. So yes, I mean, I mentioned just in my intro about the history of the law in Massachusetts. And so again, our focus is New England. So just looking at the six New England states, Massachusetts, Connecticut, and Rhode Island have infertility insurance laws. And the northern three, Maine, New Hampshire, and Vermont, do not. So as a regional organization, our, we were kind of looking and we're like, okay, we want to address this lack of access in those northern three states. And we were honestly going to do it no matter what. We we decided we're ready to proactively file legislation in one of those states. And, and our thought was we wanted to start with New Hampshire. And we were ready to proactively do that anyway. But then two things happened, which definitely did help us a lot. One was the incredible success of the bill passing in Delaware last year, I definitely think gave us wind under our sails, um, both kind of tangibly in terms of it was great to say to legislators, you know, like there's some momentum here. It's not, you know, prior to that, it had been quite a while before a new, since a new law was passed. So it was nice to say like, you're not like in uncharted territory here. Delaware just passed this great bill last year. And, um, and just, I think personally, it kind of made me more hopeful, like, oh, this can really happen. Uh, and Christy Gross, who worked, um, so tirelessly on the bill in Delaware is so personally inspiring to me as well. So it was just like, okay, this could really happen, you know? And so I, I would said I, I managed my expectations, but at the same time I was hopeful. And then, oh, so yeah, so the Delaware was one. And then the second piece was that the New Hampshire legislature became democratic in both the house and Senate side for the first time in a, in a while. And the, so that again, Obviously, we feel infertility is a bipartisan issue, um, but generally speaking, there tends to be more of a openness, at least, to consideration of an insurance-focused law 
on the part of the Democratic Party than the Republican Party, just on principle. So again, we were going to do it regardless, but those two things kind of helped us um, feel really committed. And so stay tuned, um, listeners. Resolve New England worked in partnership with many different partners, but very closely with Fertility Within Reach, um, which is another nonprofit. That's actually a national nonprofit, but it's based here in New England. So we know them very well and work with them very well. And who are also scheduled to talk to very soon. (laughs) People will get to hear about fertility within reach very soon. Yeah. Excellent. Yeah, exactly. Excellent. You're going to have a great conversation with Davina. Yes. So, and we were fortunate again, because two of our Resolve New England board members live and practice law in uh, New Hampshire. So uh, your colleague, Catherine Tucker, and Christy Hanisco, they are amazing. And they were both in New Hampshire. So we, um, so really the four of us, so Davina, myself, Catherine, and Chrissy really worked on um, drafting the actual legislation using certainly all this wonderful knowledge gained from other partners and from other legislation in other states. And we filed a bill that would provide insurance coverage for the diagnosis of infertility, for fertility treatment, and for fertility preservation for medically necessary reasons like cancer. And the first bill we started with was quite broad. It would have been incredibly um, exciting <laughs> because it was, you know, sort of like our dream bill. We decided we'll start big and we'll can always get right? smaller, but it's very rare in the legislative process to get bigger as the process goes along. Um, and what got, how did it get narrowed? Yeah. So in a nutshell, um, we, well, so one thing was that we unfortunately, you know, or compromise is a good thing, but unfortunately in the compromise process, one of the things that was lost is anyone who has an individual insurance plan in New Hampshire is now not covered by this law. It's specific to group insurance plans. And so anytime a change like that has to be made, it's hard because even some of the people advocating for the bill have individual insurance. So that was really crushing to us that these people actually pounding the halls of the state house with us weren't going to specifically benefit from it. Um, But it speaks to their character that they kept advocating for it, even when it didn't benefit them directly. And then another piece very relevant to this podcast is that we we wanted any aspect, you know, any medical aspect of surrogacy covered um, because, again, it was focused on if that was the medically necessary uh, form of treatment that was required, we wanted it to be covered. And unfortunately, the specific um, embryo transfer to a gestational carrier was a big challenging sticking point with insurers and also with legislators, um, which we really tried to understand that concern so that we could address it. And we really, um, you know, didn't want to budge on that, but it became clear that it was going to be such a challenge that it could potentially sink the whole bill. And was it an opposition to surrogacy generally or what, what were their objections? No, I, I mean, I, well, so the the main objection that was explained to us was that they were concerned about basically a medical 
I forget if this language was used, but basically like the embryo they considered sort of the medical product of the intended parents or, you know, and that were their enrollees and was being transferred into a gestational carrier who most likely was not one of their enrollees. And so they were concerned about that. And and it's tricky because that we at least couldn't think of sort of an equivalent in healthcare because in the case of like organ donation, an organ might be taken from a non-enrollee, but for the purposes of being donated and, and um, you know, surgically placed into the enrollee. So the other way around, there wasn't a lot of precedent in other health, in other healthcare that we could point to. Um, but I think there was still some just general concern and lack of awareness of surrogacy in general is just my thought. That's never, that was never said to us, but that's just my theory because it, we said, well, what about and we really weren't trying to be provocative. We were really trying to understand what the concern is. We said, you know, well, what about if the gestational carrier is an enrollee of the same insurance? Would that be, if that's your main concern, would that be okay? And they were like, no, <laughs> we still don't like it. So that's where I think it was kind of uh, beyond that. So what we did, we were very careful in what we were kind of agreeing to for the benefit of the bill in general, which was, we agreed, we had already agreed that we were not intending that insurers would cover the non-medical costs of surrogacy. Um, and also we were, so then we also agreed to an exclusion just of the actual transfer. So if someone needed surrogacy, so we, for example, have a wonderful woman who was advocating for the bill who had uterine cancer and had had a hysterectomy, but they could still do IVF. They, they have, they had and have done IVF. So she had a clear medical diagnosis where she could not carry a pregnancy, obviously. And so we were using her as an example of how like we want to make sure in an incident like that or you know a situation like that that all her care other than the transfer would be covered because and you know and so that's our understanding of uh what will be covered under the new bill so the good news is the the compromise bill passed the house and senate which was great um so it is not law yet, unfortunately, because it still needs to be signed by the governor and it hasn't even gone to him yet, as far as we know. So once it's sent, there's no particular deadline for when it needs to be sent to him. But when it is sent to him, then he has five business days, which in New Hampshire includes Saturdays. They're very hardworking up there. They consider Saturday mm. a business day. Um, <laughs> and mm. So within those five days, he has to sign it, which would be obviously what we're asking for and what we're hoping for. And, and is that looking law, good? Is, is he saying he'll sign it? Or well, do we, know? we hope so. We have, um, and he's, he is a Republican uh, and very pro-family, pro-economic development for New Hampshire, as are we. Uh, so in that way, we've been really, and, and we're fortunate, the bill throughout the process has had bipartisan support, especially in the New Hampshire State Senate. We had bipartisan, and we had bipartisan co-sponsors. We, it passed the Senate unanimously. So, I mean, which is really in, in this day and age kind of unheard of that an entire body agrees on anything. Uh, so that was a very happy and exciting day. So, 
Um, so we are very, very hopeful. And we've had some indications um, that the governor is inclined to sign it. But of course, we're not we're nervous until that actually happens. Um, so we really want him to sign it. We feel like it would be such a celebratory thing for him to do. And obviously we and everyone who's waiting to be able to afford treatment is so excited. Um, he also can decide not to sign it. And then if the five days elapse, it also becomes law that way. But it feels a little bit like a backdoor approach, but we'll take it. Um, and, or he can veto it. And obviously, it's we've been very strongly advocating for it not to be vetoed because that we really don't have enough support. Obviously, like I said, we have enough support in the Senate, but not in the House in New Hampshire to overturn a veto. So that's why we've been working so hard to get him to sign it. And I think one thing that's worth mentioning with the New Hampshire bill is that so the concern is that, you know, everyone's insurance will rise and everyone's paying for this. But even in the like opening the the first paragraph of the bill, it talks about how this actually should save money, that people often make poor choices that cost more if they don't have coverage. So I guess one of the examples is if you have to go through IVF, many people think this is my only chance. I can't pay for their cycle. So please transfer two or three embryos. And then, you know, the the medical costs for for twins and the risks that go up ends up being more than if they could just safely transfer one embryo each time. Exactly. And so we made that case a lot. And obviously, we want the decisions about care to be made between the patient and the doctor and not, you know, and the medical team, not based on financial constraints and financial worry. And another thing that really, so that really resonated. Another thing that really resonated across both parties was just the fact that we think the fertility field in New Hampshire is going to grow if there's insurance coverage and if more people can get treatment. Because Right now, there's really a lack of accessible care because um, right now in New Hampshire, there isn't a full practice, um, as far as I know, that has like a full lab or at least not for the, the like, especially the northern part of the state. So they have to travel um, in some cases quite a distance even for monitoring, but definitely for full um, treat, you know, some full treatment protocols. So, um, so we think like that you know, we, we are hopeful that practices are going to grow and that will benefit the economy. The other thing that's so profound when you hear about this is just that so many people struggle financially. If they can even pay for an out-of-pocket cycle or more than one cycle, they put off other things like buying homes or they go into further debt or all these um, things that that challenge them financially. And so obviously that is to the detriment of the state in general. So just my own experience with having insurance in Massachusetts, both my husband and I, it has made us so committed to trying to make it better for other people in other states because it was still I mean, like I said, it was one of the most challenging things we had ever experienced, but we, and that was with insurance. So to imagine all the emotional and physical strain on top of the stress of finances is just like unimaginable to us. And we truly aren't sure that we would even be parents without having had that coverage. And so it really makes us um, very committed and So I love that it's part of my job to try to get these laws passed. And so, like I said, we're hopeful. We really, um, you know, knock on wood and everything, but we really hope that Governor Sununu is going to sign the bill. And 
if he does and the bill becomes law, I think, again, it's going to really give us some momentum to look at either Maine or Vermont next. Yeah, right. Yeah. Here, let, let's quiz you. What are the six, is it 16 or 17 oh, states gosh. that have some kind of coverage? <laughs> Go, name them all. <laughs> oh, no, I know, I know. I probably could, but I don't know if you want to listen to me go through the whole list. But, no, no uh, I mean, I think the point though is that most of us in the United States still live without right, it. And right. what, what can we, what can we do? What do you recommend? Well, I mean, I think, um, you know, when people, I just, I gave a talk last week and someone was asking about uh, federal advocacy and obviously some great things have happened with federal advocacy and amazing work and advocacy day is incredible. And I want to be there every day until I can't walk anymore. Oh my God. Um, I'm so tired. And, <laughs> and then, then I'll probably, I'll be like, Jen, wheel me around Capitol Hill right? on that day. I'll push, I, I'll push one day and then you push the next day. Yeah, we'll take turns. Okay, perfect. Perfect. <laughs> but I, I do, I think that's a wonderful event. That said, I, I feel that real change is most likely to happen. And unfortunately it's tiring and it's slow. It feels very slow, but I think change is going to come state by state. And even employer by employer, and again, Resolve and others are doing amazing work at convincing employers that this makes sense to offer as a benefit to their employees, even if it's not mandated in the state in which they do business. Um, and I think we're seeing that already. So hopefully, I'm hopeful that more and more of that is going to happen. But I think a big shift is just for people to recognize that fortunately, although infertility will is rarely life threatening it's extremely life limiting and it is a disease so we have an un, you know general expectation in this country that when you have a disease you will have access to treatment for it and coverage for treatment of it. And even if it's not going to kill you, that doesn't mean it's any less of a disease. And I think parenthood in general is such a core human aspiration that um, I hope people can can have empathy for the fact that when there is a, even in my case, unknown, but some kind of barrier physically to that being done, that it will be covered. And I mean, I also, I mean, we're so proud to be a very progressive organization. I mean, we, we want access to care to be better for many different people, whether they have a diagnosis of infertility or just whether they need assisted reproductive technology or other paths to parenthood to make their dream of parenthood come true. So there's a lot, hopefully a lot of change is going to come. It just might be kind of slow and <laughs> deliberative, but. Well, we are incredibly grateful for people like you who are dedicating your careers to, to helping others and helping them to be able to have a family that they, they might not otherwise be able to have. Oh, thank you. Well, likewise. And I mean, I love this job so much and definitely the best part of my job is getting to know the individuals and couples in our community and, you know, and hope, you know, seeing them through to resolution, it, you know, is not always resolution, obviously through with parenthood. I wish it would be for anyone who wants that, but unfortunately the reality is that's not the case, but we love to continue to be there for them and, and have them continue to feel part of our community of support. And, um, you know, similarly, I think we, we've talked a lot to people lately that maybe don't have problems conceiving, but have problems 
maintaining a healthy pregnancy and having a healthy live birth. And it's very important to me that they feel very much part of our community. To me, obviously, if you're not at your goal of the family that you envisioned, then you're part of our community. And it's been um, really such a privilege and a joy to have this job. So yes. Oh, yay. Oh, with that, that's perfect. So thank you so much. We are so honored to get to get a chance to to share your story and talk about Resolve New England. So thank you, Kate. Well, thank you both so much. Take care. So it, it was wonderful to have Kate on. And the, actually the coolest thing about this, and you all, you all may may know this through the magic of, of the world and podcasting, but we don't record these live. And we had Kate on and the day that we recorded this, we talked through that New Hampshire bill. And a few hours later, she sent us a message and said it passed today. So it was actually really cool that we we were recording with her the day of the of that, that the, gover- the governor had signed. I think the governor was like tipped that what was yeah, going on. You better sign yeah, no, like we is totally yeah. I'm gonna take it, right? It was us. We have a lot of influence this podcast, even without yeah. airing. Yeah, no, totally us. So yeah, but it, if you want to influence us, <laughs> um, you could definitely leave us an iTunes review. Uh, or you can give us a call. We'd love to hear from people on our hotline. 303 997-1903 and also love to give shout outs when we see people in person. So I got to meet uh, Liz uh, that we this summer when I was on some of my many travels and she um, said hello to us. And so I'm really, really excited to get to meet people who listen and get to talk through all the things that we talk about on the episodes. And don't be afraid to, to reach out if you think you have a story that you might want to share. So if you had a, a poignant personal story with assisted reproductive technology, or if you're the child of a surrogacy arrangement, we haven't had that yet. I'd love to hear I'd love how to talk someone to about that. feels yeah. about being born this way or how it's affected their life. Um, also, if you're Michelle Obama and you want to talk about your IVF experience, like please give us a call. She already rejected me once, so uh, I don't know. Well, I, yeah, I mean, maybe trying. it was just her press. Keep it trying. was her press people. Persistence, it's important. Yeah. It was her press people. Maybe they gatekept, and so now if she hears this, she will come to us directly. <laughs> so thank you all, and obviously always thank you to Chris at Worker Bird Studios, Lexi in our office, Amanda, everybody, and Ashley, everybody who makes us look and sound prettier than my voice that is filled with cold deserved to sound. So thank you all so much for listening. 